What is going on, everybody? I am Greg Helbeck, and my co-host, Michael Pinter, and I are bringing you another episode of the New York Real Estate Investing Show. This show is all about how to be successful in New York State, one of the best places and one of the most difficult places to do business in. And each and every week, Michael and I are going to bring awesome content to everybody who wants to learn how to do this business successfully in New York. Between the both of us, we have done hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of deals. We've made millions of dollars and we've also made a ton of mistakes. So if you wanna try your best to avoid those mistakes, definitely take a listen to this podcast. Every single week, we are gonna provide actionable, tactical steps on how you can be successful investing in the Empire State of New York. Stay tuned and welcome to the show. All right, what's going on, everyone? Welcome back to the New York Real Estate Show. We got our second ever guest. I got the handsome home buyer Charles Weinrab on the podcast. And if uh, people aren't familiar with this guy, they uh, probably have been living under a rock. He's all over social media. He's a massive, massive home buyer developer out in Long Island, and uh, it's very impressive to see the the uh, the journey he's been on so far as he documents everything. And I'm looking forward to Michael and I interview him. So, Charles, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, appreciate it, man. Thank you very much for having me. Good to see you guys. I know uh, I know Mike a long time. I haven't seen him in a while, so it's good to reconnect. Yeah, Charles and I used to sit next to each other at the auctions that I went to in Nassau County many years ago. Charles was smart enough to get the hell out of there quickly. I was stupid enough to stay there, <laughs> stay there for a few years and 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 uh, slowly buy less and less as more and more people showed up and bid the prices up. So Charles yeah. Charles made a much smarter move than me by leaving uh, when he did. <laughs> yeah. I, it's interesting. I was brought into this business, like never doing that. I, I mean, it's, it would be great if you could just go to the auctions, but I've always been trained, like go direct to seller because that's where the deals are. And, you know, maybe, maybe in the future that will change as, uh, you know, some of these foreclosures start to go into play, but um, yeah, yeah, I, wish, I wish I had gone direct to seller four years before when I started going to the auction, but yeah, can't, can't turn the can't, can't turn the clock back. That's true. So Charles, if people aren't familiar with you before we get into what you got going on on the business end, give everyone just a little backstory on how you got started in the real estate business. Uh, yeah. So basically 90 second overview. Uh, I owned a body shop franchise called Mako and Hempstead over to get Mako. Uh, when I was 27, I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad and said, that's it. I'm going to become a professional investor. I decided to become a real estate investor. Uh, I took a one-day class at NYU on foreclosures because everybody thinks that uh, banks are just giving houses away. Obviously, we know that's not true. Uh, I met, uh, I was directed towards the local RIAs where I met my mentor, Carl Chabon, who I trained with for almost four years prior to doing my first deal. And uh, the rest is history. I flip anywhere from 70 to 110 houses a year. I also got my master's degree, uh, finished that up a year and a half ago at NYU in real estate development. And I have a number of development projects in the works, assisted living facility in Farmingdale, medical office in Massapequa. Um, we're doing the largest 3D printed home subdivision in the country to break ground in January in Riverhead. It's going to be 25, uh, 25 houses on 27 acres. There's, uh, there's a lot of good shit coming. That is amazing. Now, you, the, the biggest thing, I, another thing I noticed with you too, is you, you have found a way to make rental properties work in New York, especially in Long Island. Uh, yeah, man. So, so that's the first thing I want to cover because a lot of people sure. we interview, well, whether it's my show or Michael's own show, a lot of guys are flipping houses and they're wholesaling, they're making real money, seven figures, but the rentals seem to be a struggle. And I started picking up rentals last year. Michael has rentals. How the heck do you make the rental properties work in Long Island? Because I look at deals in the Hudson Valley and in San Diego and 
you know, when you run the numbers, at least when I look at the leads I get, like after I account for all the debt service, doesn't mm-hmm. make a lot of cash flow. So what, what are you doing to consistently, because what do you have over a hundred doors, right? Out in Long Island? Yeah, I have over a hundred doors now. So what, what, so, are you, what are you doing? Yeah, to make that work. So basically they are mixed. They're like 50% single families and the rest are multifamilies, anywhere from two to 10 units. Um, yeah. I started buying these things up like four years ago, like dirt cheap. The thing about rentals is, I mean, right now, it, it, the market doesn't always favor rentals. Right now, the market doesn't really favor rentals. So, you know, you're flipping and then the market will adjust. It always adjusts. Um, rentals usually only work in certain areas. Like, you know, I have a big portfolio in Patchogue, Shirley, Mastic, Mastic Beach, Bellport, et cetera. Places in Suffolk County where the taxes are very low and I can get the properties at a, um, you know, at a reasonable number. I mean, I was buying stuff in Mastic and Shirley and Belport for 40, 50, 60,000 a few years ago. You know, and now those things are worth, you know, over 300. So uh, it's been really, really good to me. Uh, I predominantly work with program programs such as CDC, Section 8, Options for Community Living. I do have some cash tenants, but um, I, I do a lot with the, uh, the program tenants. And because of that, I did really well during COVID. Yeah, no, that's, that's awesome. So. When it comes to the like the, the the deal, are you basically doing the burr on all these rentals, or are you leaving a lot of your money in these deals? Because that's how nah. scale. Yeah, no, I'm not. I'm pulling the majority, if not all, of my money out on these things. And then I've been buying like so. There's a lot of like baby boomers that are retiring. That you know they weren't real professional investors, but they had like a decent amount of you know two families and three families and a ten, a ten unit or whatever. And I've been buying up people's portfolios and then just doing you know value add repositioning on those things. And, uh, you know, adding value and refinancing out 18 months later. So, yeah, it's, it's that type of thing. It's I flip houses to generate income, to buy rentals, refinance, add them, keep it going. Uh, I'm actually teeing up right now. We're closing either this week or next week a really big refinance. We're going to be refinancing across about 30 properties because uh, I, think it's, I think it's the time to do that before rates start to tick up next year and lock in some long-term cheap debt. What, what, lender, what lender are you doing that blanket mortgage with? That one I'm actually doing with share estates because it's, mo- it's mostly single family homes. So they're doing like three, eight, five, 30 year at 65% LTV. It's not bad. That's yeah. No, it's not bad. That's awesome. Yeah. You, oh, go ahead. You've got, um, you got them, you got Corvest, you have finance of America. Those are the portfolio type lenders that people need to go to. Yeah. Uh, you know, once you start buying more than like five or six max 10, you can't go to the uh, traditional banks anymore. Yeah, that's that's what I noticed. I I bought a townhouse as a rental and and did a reverse burst. So I refied it before I rent or renovated it because there was ten in there, and I got a like a regular credit union to give me like two point eight percent fifteen year fully amortized. But then I looked at it and it's it's tied to my personal name and it's on my credit report. So I really don't like yeah. that. In a perfect world, I would yeah. have done it differently. Um, yeah, you know what I mean. So it's it's interesting. I I've found too like. Finance America, Lending Home, a lot of these like hard money lenders have yeah. reasonable rates, you know, yeah. considering the fact that you don't need to, you know, show like, you know, W-2 income, which the three of us don't have. Um, so it's, it's interesting to see how that, I remember like three or four years ago, like it was challenging to do a refinance because there was not a lot of options. And now these hard money lenders and these big funds, honestly, they've just pivoted to see the market change. And now it's very easy to do a burr on the exit, you know, versus three years ago, it was very hard to find the, the lender who would cash you out, you know? Yeah. I mean, single family homes have, have long been, you know, just overlooked. Like, so when I first got into this call, my mentor was like, listen, there's nothing more profitable 
in the rental market than a single family home. And he's 100% right. Like there were deals that I did. Like I bought a house in Patrick for 70 grand with people that people in them, turned them into tenants, put 20,000 in, bank appraised the property at 240,000. You're never going to get that type of, you know, equity or, or cash flow in, you know, in an apartment building. It's just, there's too many people running after it. So now with COVID and the, and the market changing, now big funds are, are coming after single family homes and buying up you know, thousands of single family homes and lenders are adjusting as well because they see that it makes sense. Everybody used to be like, oh, well, you know, if, if, it's, if it's vacant, then you're screwed. I want apartment buildings. So if one unit's vacant, it's still okay. I want one roof for, 40, for 50 tenants. I don't want one roof for one tenant. We, used to, we heard all that crap for many years. <laughs> yeah, but, it's, yeah, but it's, it's not really the case. People stay longer and they treat the units better when they're, uh, when they're single family homes. I a hundred percent agree with that. It's funny. I picked up a mixed use commercial property, one store that's still vacant to this day and three apartments. And I've found that even though the cash flow might be better, which it's not the tenants in, at least in the small ones, they like team up against the landlord sometimes, you know? So like if they're all living there, like we had the, one of them thought there was mold, which there wasn't. And then the one tenant, one of the downstairs tenant and started telling them that there was mold. And then they're both calling us. And then we got to send a mold guy. So I found like when they're all separated, like the other two um, townhouses I have, they don't yeah. know, they, they don't know I own both of them They're You know what I mean? So it's, I, I, I agree with you. I think another thing about the single family rentals, especially in New York too, or anywhere is that they're very liquid too. If you need to sell one or whatever, like you can just sell that and it's going to take you 60 days to go full cycle. And I'm trying to sell that apartment building I have right now. And there's not as many buyers for that, especially mixed use than there are for houses. So I, I actually find apartments a little bit riskier. If you look at the exits, like it's, it's going to be harder to sell that because their buyer pool is going to be a lot smaller. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, listen, everything comes with pros and cons, you know, single family homes does come with, with some management challenges, but like, you know, I have a full-time staff dedicated to that. So I have two people. I have a full-time handyman and a full-time property manager. They both work for me for my property management company and they handle it. We do inspections uh, every three months. You know, we're just, we're right, we're right on top of everything. Yeah, no, that's awesome. So when it comes to now, we covered the rental side now on the, on the flipping side, on the fix and flip side, you know, I know a lot of guys who do high volume wholesaling. I don't know too many people besides you and Jeremiah, especially in Long Island who do like real volume fix and flipping. So first question is, do you take down everything or do you do assignments? Cause you got a lot of deal flow coming into your pipeline. I bet. So what are you doing on the wholesale side? If anything, I don't wholesale stuff. You don't wholesale anything. Nah, I take down everything and we do everything from, you know, buying a section eight rental to doing subdivisions, putting dormers on houses. I, I take it all. Um, a it's just, I need it for the machine. We're, we're set up to just pump out stuff and then be like, I don't like dealing with wholesaling because for everybody that's an investor out there, they're all full of shit, these people. Like, you know, <laughs> when it comes time, there's always a problem. They yep. have the hard money lender, the this, the that. It's just like, bro, I don't have time for this shit. I don't. Yeah, yeah. It's, I, I've, I've had this conversation with Michael many times. I say that when wholesaling works out, it's great, especially in our area where the margins are big. But I've found wholesaling, especially when you're making a lot of money, it can be more challenging or at least less straightforward than taking a deal down. Because you're in the middle and it's awkward because you got that seller who's expecting one thing and then the buyer is ultimately in control and you're in the middle and you're a little bit of a quagmire sometimes. You're, so you're, making, a lot of you're making representations that you may or may not be able to, uh, to yeah. uh, do. Yeah, exactly. And, and none of these, like, 
it's very, very, very few professional investors in the fix and flip game, like guys that are really raising private money that can send an email and have money there in a day, like that kind of stuff is very rare. Yeah, no, it's true. A lot of, a lot of it is, is, is dependent on the hard money lender. So that brings my next question. There's, there's the deal flow aspect of it, which we can cover later, but in terms of the operation. So from my perspective, like I don't flip as many houses as you nearly, what do you do to, to like, if I had three rehabs going on at once, I'm like, Oh crap, that's a lot. But how do you manage all that construction? Like, like from an operation standpoint, especially on long Island where the towns can be a little funny, but like, what do you guys do to streamline that? So it doesn't get as crazy as I would think. Cause you guys have obviously know what you're doing. So the operation so, looks challenging from my perspective. It is still because the towns are a freaking nightmare. I mean, Mike will tell you, they just, they can't even get out of their own way. They're a freaking disaster, all of them. But, um, we basically have everything in house. So I own Captain Permit, which is the full service architect and expediting company. So I have five employees that handle all the permits for us. Uh, I then have my own construction company, an infield foreman, two in-house uh, construction managers. We, ha we have staff plumbers, staff electricians. We, we handle it all. As, yeah, that, that, that sounds like that. That's how you make it work because I... <laughs> I have subcontractors running around and it's just like, you're, you're just chasing people around all day long. They don't work for you. So they're not incentive. You know, it's just, I found that to be challenging. So are you, so you got basically all the construction is in house for the most part. Is that including the, the actual GCs and stuff like that, or like cabinet people? And what about the supply? Like, do you have a supply? Like, do you deal like with the supply side, like cabinets and, and plumbing supply? Like, do you have any of that, those companies or are you still buy from vendors? So I, so I'm the GC, we're a licensed general contractor. So we sub stuff them out, some stuff out, and then we have staff. Uh, we order containers of cabinets from overseas in different colors that we store here because we do so many of them. And um, yeah, we haven't really had like a vendor problem. We do a lot of, uh, of business through Home Depot and, you know, uh, Home Depot in Farmingdale, they have a great setup for us. JR like gets us anything we need and it's, it's pretty streamlined. Uh, we have a, uh, I have, a prof I have a designer that designs all the houses. I don't deal with any of it. The designer comes in and basically designs each house unique and different, sends the information to our CM crew inside, and uh, they order it up and get it done. That is the way to do it. That is definitely the way to do it. That's awesome. Michael, I've been hogging the mic up. I apologize, man. I'm, I'm going to let you ask some questions. I just realized that. For sure. No, that's all right. So, Charles, where are, you, where are you getting a lot of your deals from these days? It's really everywhere. Like it's not, there's not like, you know, a magic bullet or a, or a tree in the backyard. It's like I do 30, 40 different things consistently well all the time and I get deals. I mean, from, you know, being out in the street to I, if I had to quantify the overwhelming majority of where my deals come from, it's definitely via the network that I've established. And, you know, the network is created through one-on-one -on -one relationship building, going out, meeting people, uh, and the social media, the amount of social media that I do as an extension of who I am has definitely had a massive impact on my business. Hmm. Like I have, mm -hmm. I have a four, I have a four person social media team that just creates content for me. And then I personally post everything. Okay. So when you say it's from network, is that from uh, mostly realtors or other people in the business? Is that what you mean? Everything. It's realtors, wholesalers, attorneys, insurance people. Just, you know, people know me. I'm on TV. Like, I'm just, I'm everywhere. I'm like haunting people's dreams. <laughs> pretty, pretty, I see you. I pretty see you much. My, I see you on my phone all the time. So it's definitely working. Um, 
So you do, so you do buy you do buy a certain percentage of your properties from wholesalers, correct? Yep, absolutely, love them. So you don't mind dealing with them on that side, but you don't want to be the wholesaler in in the middle trying to sell a property to uh, to a rehabber, correct? Yeah, exactly. I just I want to acquire, so I work with a lot of wholesalers. They come directly to me with everything. They know I don't pay the most, but they know that I can handle volume and I always deliver, and that's why they come to me. Okay, that's great. Yeah, that's awesome. And that, that's the thing I've noticed with new wholesalers, especially in New York. Michael and I have talked about this at length. Like the biggest challenge, I think, in, in the Long Island, Hudson Valley, you know, tri-state, whatever you want to call it, Connecticut, is that a lot of new investors, they don't really know what a deal is. They, they find some guru in Arizona talking about, you know, there's people, oh, I don't know anything about real estate. I just I'm a pawn shop. And like, so they'll take that advice and then they'll go market around our area and they'll think that a non-deal is a deal. And then they'll think that, you know, some, you know what I mean? They don't understand exactly what a deal is. And a lot of deals in, in our area, the sellers really aren't desperate. Like they're pretty smart people. They, they understand what's going on. And, and sometimes it's just a negotiation and it's like, they might be asking a, 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 price and that might be a price that works and if they didn't sound motivated a lot of new people will throw that away so if they can come to a person like you and rely on you to you know help them guide them you know it's, it's a win-win for everybody and then these new investors can can have a good exit you know from you know with you versus trying to lock stuff up that doesn't make sense and i'm sure you'll let them know right away whether it's a deal or not a deal and why so they have some confidence and clarity going forward when they do their marketing efforts you know yeah, no, without a doubt. I mean, there's also something that we do that I'm sure other guys do, but just worth talking about. You know, we're putting out all this money to bring in deal flow. A lot of the deal flow that comes in ends up being retail type business. So we refer oh, yeah. it out to to realtors that we know in the area. And, um, you know, we get a referral fee as a result of that that goes back to offset the marketing. So the idea is really to, to turn every lead into money in some way. Yeah, 100%. That, that's something I've done before. I haven't done it recently. I just, I got to focus more on that. But it's amazing to see all the, all that waste in my CRM. It's like every lead's going to cost me 150, 200 bucks. And, you know, we convert maybe one out of 25. <laughs> and the other 24, it's like, how do we turn that into money? Because, you know, it, I spend, you know, 15, 20 grand a month on marketing. So I want to make sure that, you know, we're, 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 we're capitalizing on every lead. So, um, no, that's awesome. Now, now there's a few other things that I, I see that you're doing now. You mentioned this 3D printed home yep. you know, development. How on earth did you get involved in that? That just is mind blowing. And I saw some of your videos on, on like you documenting it. It's just crazy to see how you know, things are changing. The sickest thing you've ever seen in your life. Yeah. So um, my very good friend Enzo Pagani uh, invented the 3D printer um, at a patch og. So essentially what it is, it's, it's a gantry style setup, like a regular 3D printer that you would see that would just print your phone case or whatever, but it's, it's, it's massive. And uh, essentially what it does is it has different tips and it, it accommodates a, a 7,500 PSI Portland cement mixture. And it just basically prints the house. Now he's doing stuff that nobody else in the world is doing, which he's, he's doing the footings, foundation, you know, the slab and the interior and exterior walls. He's actually almost done developing a printer that is going to use recycled plastic bottles to print cabinets, countertops, moldings, doors, everything. I was over there yesterday checking it out. It is like next level. On top of that, you can, you can um, basically design your house in VR, puts virtual reality goggles on you. You're on the street. 
walking through the street, you walk into your house, you can order furniture, you could change, um, you know, wall color, you can move walls. It is like some George Jetson futuristic crap. It is nuts. Really is cool. What is the part like, cause that's such an innovative thing. Like when you propose this to Riverhead, wherever the, you know, the township, whatever that is, like, how did that, like, how did you kind of get them to, to buy into that? Cause it's such a, you know, unique thing that, yeah. that is not common now. Like how did that, pro cause you're doing a whole subdivision. So that's a huge permit process. Yeah. So we're doing a couple actually. So the first one was built in Riverhead as a, um, so this is what actually happened. This was the process. So, and um, most municipalities are not okay with it because they just don't understand it. But, yeah. you know, the long and the short of it is, it's just a concrete house. They've been building houses out of concrete for, you know, hundreds of years. Uh, it's just now there's a machine that does it with two people and it's a lot cheaper and you get a much better product. But um, H2M, the architect's firm was pivotal in helping us get uh, approvals in Riverhead. We did, we built a, um, basically a house with no electric and plumbing in Calverton and the building department said, we want to see what it looks like in a year. So they came back in a year and it was, you know, perfect. So they said, great, we'll give you a permit. So we pre-sold and built the first spec ones being done right now in Riverhead. Um, I met with the mayor of Atlantia. I bought a piece of property there. He was, mayor of Atlantia is amazing. He gave us the green light. So we're going to be starting one over there in about two weeks. And, uh, and then back to Riverhead for the 25 lots which they love because I mean, the stuff we're doing is super, super futuristic. Like we're doing gray water systems for the lawn. So we capture all the rainwater, it, it goes into a container and then it's used to irrigate the, uh, the lawns. We're doing solar, we're doing uh, Tesla charging stations and we're looking into doing geothermal if we can get enough rebates to make it work. Man, it sounds like you can <laughs> California because Gavin Newsom would love that with all the BS <laughs> going on out where I live. I mean, you got to get a free out here. How much, how much cheaper is it to build a house with the 3D printing than it is to actually use it the, re the regular stick built way? 40%. 40% less. And what about time-wise? Is it much faster? About 40% as well. It's 40% cheaper and 40% faster. Absolutely. So you can 3D print the, the forms, the footings, the foundation, the interior and exterior walls in 40 print hours. Then there's a roof truss system that comes in, just gets popped on top. So you're looking at like an average of, let's say, three months to do a 3D printed house, you know, versus a traditional stick build is more in your like four to six, typically six month range or sure. more. And the printer goes on site and starts building it there or it's built somewhere else and then brought there? No, the printer comes on site. So basically it folds up. This is generation one. Generation two will be out Q1 of next year. That actually folds up into the back of like a small U-Haul trailer. So basically you pull up the U-Haul trailer. One guy can just unfold the thing. It's crazy. Uh, set it up right there and it just prints the house out, fold it back up and go. In a, in a, in a, month, in a month, you're saying? No, in 40 print hours. So basically so that, like- In a week? Yeah, between a, a week. Yeah, basically a week. And then you just need the roof trust to be- brought in from somewhere else and then the roof it's regular roofing on top yep regular roofing the truss system goes on then you do your electric your plumbing uh you can do whatever interior finishes you want you don't need sheetrock you can use just the um you know just the way the the beading works it looks and very is it, cool is it insulate the the so the walls are insulated they're self-insulated just from the from the concrete no so basically the walls are it's typically eight inches there's an eight inch gap or you can make whatever you want however wide you do and you, you fill it with spray foam insulation so your r value is dependent on how wide you want the walls to be typical walls are eight inches oh, eight inch eight inches wide in total or an eight inch gap in between them there's an eight inch gap in between and then you just you just spray foam the inside for that 
and then the, in, that, the in that gap is where the plumbing and electrical is going also exactly got it all right i because i didn't see I, i've been watching your videos but i don't understand how that worked but now i got it yeah that's that's very new like the one that you saw in the video had no plumbing and electric the one they're doing now kind of in the quiet is doing that i the one that i'm doing in Islandia, i'm gonna live stream it so you can see every aspect of the build I am going to definitely watch that. You mentioned Islandia. I watched one of the videos that you did that I really liked was the one where you mentioned the five best municipal. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, the, yeah, the three best and three worst. Right. I I don't know. I don't. I think we we might we we definitely agree on some. Town of North Hempstead for sure is uh, I think the worst. Not, I think it's the worst the in the worst. Worst. <laughs> the worst. Do you still um, not? Buy, you don't buy. You don't buy there. I really don't buy in the town of North Hempstead unless I'm getting a price that's so sick that I can afford to sit on it and lose money for a year. Right. Because it's just, I mean, Town of Hempstead's awful. Town of Brookhaven is god awful. I mean, they're really all bad except the villages. The villages are very, are very good for the most I agree. part. Some of the villages are really, some of the villages are more difficult than others in in, in Nassau. But um, yeah, I, I I agree with you. Some of the towns are terrible. But town of Hempstead is better than Town of North Hempstead. I just almost had a deal in Town of North Hempstead, and I told the guy, I said, yep. I can't pay that price because I'm gonna. It's gonna take me a year to get to get to get to talk to anybody there. It's crazy. Oh yeah, and they'll give you a stop work order in a minute. They like repel off of buildings to give you a stop work order. They come out of nowhere, these people. Yeah, I'm still waiting. I think four years ago they told me they would send me something that I'm waiting for, to get. Uh, I had to sell the property and leave some money, leave some money in escrow. I'm not counting on them calling me back. <laughs> it's awful, man. It really is. It's so bad, and it's unnecessary. For sure, it's it's completely illogical. But you know that like six years ago they had a big problem there where I yeah. think some people went to prison so they swore the pendulum yeah, swung like all the way in the direction yeah. we're still waiting five years for the pendulum to come back to the normal place where they'll just be normal people but they're they're not normal i mean it's just it's just bureaucratic i mean it's just it's nonsense it really is government doesn't really do many things well if anything well they really should privatize the building department in my opinion you're 100 percent right can you imagine how great that would be i'll pay an extra hundred dollars get me get me my permit today <laughs> yeah, I mean, listen, let let the government lay everybody off, let them tax whatever it is, they'll get a percentage of the fees, and that's it. Let architects self sign, you won't need self uh, inspect, you won't need these, you know, building inspectors anymore. They're architects on the line for everything anyway. You're 100% right. Probably never gonna happen, but sounds good to me. <laughs> Probably, yeah, not in New York. Yeah, I, I've noticed that. And that brings us to <laughs> the, the, the big thing, you're doing all this in New York. And you know, I've done business in a few different areas. And I've found that the biggest challenge in New York, besides the permits, which, you know, probably are harder in New York, is that the sales cycle, like what is your average full cycle on a rehab when you're buying something, renovating and then selling and, and ultimately funding and getting your cash back? Like, what do you at least shoot for on your rehabs? Because you're doing this in, in high volume. You know, so I try to budget for a six month, but when you're dealing with these permits, it's just not going to happen. Like your average is probably more about like the nine to 10 month range, just because of the whole permit process. New York has the longest permit turnaround time in the country. I believe it's like 11.3 oh, yeah. months or 11.6, something crazy like that. So uh, it's, it's, it's a mess. It really is. New York is the hardest place. I mean, obviously I'm biased, but I think Michael would agree. New York's the hardest place to do anything. Sure. They're, but, it's very, with, very, very hard. Right. But with that comes, you know, the flip side of that is that there are, thank God we have less competition and we usually make more money, but, but it's the hardest place to do things for sure. Very hard. Very hard. Everything is an uphill battle. Yeah. And I, I found too, like the, the, just the contract process alone. Like when I go get a property under contract, like I'll get lucky if I put one to $2,000 down and, and I have friends <laughs> I and mean, you've interviewed people on your podcast, like the guy in LA who does virtual deals all over the country. I mean, 
Okay. He has VAs. So, so Michael, Charles interviewed this guy. You should watch it. it he, he's virtually wholesaling in like the Midwest. I believe he lives in Los Angeles. And he yep. actually has VAs, virtual assistants in the Philippines, buying houses and signing contracts over the telephone, which is amazing. Yeah. I mean, amazing. And they're putting down like no deposits, $10, $100. And I'm just like, imagine, you could, imagine they not only did they privatize the building department, but they got rid of the attorneys for the real estate transaction. <laughs> How crazy in New York, what that would look like. It'd be a different world. <laughs> yeah, no, nah, New York is an attorney state. Those guys need to get paid. Those, they got to justify their $2,500 fee. So yeah. When, yeah, you get, when you got the $20,000 deposit, you know, it's, it's hard to negotiate that. So let me ask you this. What's the future look like? I mean, we, we've both seen your trajectory just starts like, what, what's the five-year vision for the Charles and the handsome home buyer team? I mean, where do you want to take this? Uh, I'm going to own a private equity fund in the next three years. So what I plan on doing is before I leave the game, I want to I want to prove myself that I was the best that ever did it around here. So my goal is to do 200 houses next year. So I'm going to do 200 houses next year. I think next year we get a good market. The year after that, we get a good market. I think the year after that, it starts to get dicey. And I think after that, we're screwed. <laughs> um, uh, personally, that's my opinion. And uh, I'll I will just kind of transition into private equity, raise money, hopefully right before the uh, you know, next market correction and then be able to go buy stuff on sale. That's what happens in a perfect world. That sounds like- uh, can, an you awesome call, can you call me that day, the day it's about to change? Just let me know. <laughs> I actually like, I always get like a feeling for it. Like I didn't know, obviously. So in two, the, February of 2018, I like, I felt a change because 2017 was a nuts year. Like we were cranking. And then February, January was very busy. I bought 10 houses in January. And then I felt something in February and I was like, that's it, it's over. My guys are like, what are you, my buddies are like, what are you talking about? I'm like, I'm telling you, it's over. Real estate's like a slow turning ship. Q4, end of Q4, 2019, there's going to be something that goes on. Now I didn't know, I was, I was one quarter off and I didn't know that COVID was gonna sweep across the globe and screw everything up. But you get like that kind of feel of the way the market ebbs and flows when you do so much business. And it's just really a matter of time. Like it just makes sense. Everything cycles. It's definitely a matter of time. I was, listen, I, I, I thought the, the market was going to turn years ago. I was way too early. I don't know when it's going to happen, but just when you know it's going to happen, just text me. Okay. It will. So this, so next year it's going to be good. The year after that's going to be good. Probably start to get dicey. Like the second half of the fall of, of the third year. And then the fourth year, it's just like, get ready for fucking Armageddon. Um, <laughs> okay, I mean, I think the, I think the government really, uh, I think they screwed us up. I think they're, they're setting us up like they always do for, you know, a major problem. I agree. I don't know if it's going to take as long as you think, but who knows? We'll see. Yeah. I, I think the biggest thing that, that I've noticed in, at least in California, because the real estate market out here is, is believe it or not, even more expensive than New York, which is already expensive. Like in San Diego, for example, I just did a, a deal where the, the ARV was 750. And this is in mm -hmm. a, a regular working class, kind of not a seedy area, but but not the greatest area in the world. And that was 750. So I'm, I'm thinking to myself, well, it was a wholesale deal. So I had no risk, but I'm like, all right, this is 750. This is what a consumer is going to ultimately pay for this house. The affordability, it seems to me, at least in California, and I'm sure in New York and in Long Island, yeah. it's the same. Like that is seems to be a problem because as interest rates go up and the values climb up, you know, if somebody's only making, I mean, only making a hundred grand, 
right? And they have yeah. a $850,000 house. I mean, that's two thirds of their income is going to their housing payments. So I, I can see that being yeah. a real indication on, on trouble in the future. Yeah, it's a massive problem. I mean, Long Island is, is, is not an affordable place to live. I mean, oh. your, your median sales price in Nassau is probably about like six fifty now and Suffolk's probably about five fifty. You know, taxes are very high. And listen, everybody who likes affordable housing, they just don't want it in their backyard. So, you know, it, it's, it's a constant losing battle. Like I've tried to do affordable housing development deals for seniors and things like that. I love that stuff. And uh, nobody, nobody wants it. They, they, they think it's going to bring the dregs of society. It's it just people just don't, they just don't like change. Yeah, especially in an area like Long Island, wherever, you know, where, where things have been the same way for so long. They don't, they don't want to yep. see. They don't want to see the evolution. And uh, well, I think it's going to be cool now to see the, the evolution of this 3D printing. I'm excited to follow that because that, that's, that's something that when you started putting those videos out, I, I really was like, I didn't know how to even interpret it. And then I watched the video and I'm like, oh, this is actually pretty cool. And I actually saw the concrete and how it actually worked. And it's just, it's going to disrupt in a good way. It's going to disrupt everything, the way things are done. And, and I, mean, I mean, with the ARVs on these new 3D printed houses, I'm sure they're the same, if not more than, than a regular stick built house. Cause it seems like those houses are, are just better houses from an actual product perspective. Yeah. Way better, way better houses. I mean, they, we give a 50 year warranty on the structure itself. I mean, it's basically fireproof, waterproof, insect proof. It's a much, much, much better product. You could do radiant flooring, which actually can radiate into the walls. So you can have radiant floor and walls. It's just like, you just, it's a much, much, much better product. That is awesome. That is awesome. So as we summarize this, this interview and wind down, I mean, what would you say you've been, how long you've been in real estate for seven or eight years now? Six years. Six, so you've been in this business for six years. You've accomplished more than most people will accomplish in their entire, you know, journey. What would you say if you had to boil, I, I know this is a hard question probably, but if you had to boil it down to one thing, you got a lot going on, you got your hands in many pots. What was the one thing that you would say that has allowed you to have this growth that you have had in this short period of time? Because that's a lot to accomplish in six years. Real education, bro. I spend the time to do like I trained with Carl for four years, three years before I was ready to get my first deal. It took me an entire year just to get the first deal. I worked with him every week, seven days a week, basically. And then uh, my, my uh, third year in the business, I did 67 houses. I went back to NYU, spent $100,000 to get a master's degree in real estate development. It's a constant, you know, constant education, constant networking, constantly, you know, just new ideas. That's what you need to do. Because if you think you're going to watch a fix and flip show, go get a hard money lender who's going to give you 90% of the purchase price and 100% of the reno and go out there and get it done. You got another thing coming. <laughs> it's, it's, just, it's just not the reality of it. Like there's a very big difference between somebody who's trained and professional and somebody who just wants to go out there and thinks they can swing a hammer or whatnot. Totally. Those are the people we love to wholesale houses to, that avatar. <laughs> that's, that's where you make yes. your 100K assignment fees, just for the record, because that uh, we get, we get, so I've found like you put a deal out to the list, the flippers will pay a certain number, which usually can work, but then you have this random, I call him a Joe Blow buyer. And yep. just watch Tarek Al Musa rip it up with some cabinets, and uh, he comes in, uh, you know, thirty thousand dollars over your your ask price, and you're like, well, as long as this guy's got money and a pulse, I'd be foolish yep. not sell him this property. <laughs> so let's, let's yeah. <laughs> oh man, well, this has been a fun interview. You're, you you got a lot of stuff going for you now. If people want to follow you and uh, connect with you and 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 check out your awesome content, I know you have 
a podcast. You got everything. So just give the people a way to, to get in touch with you and uh, we'll go from there. Absolutely. We're across every platform. So whatever your pleasure is from TikTok to Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, I have a text platform. Easiest way to just go to the website, handsomehomebuyer.com. Go to stay in touch on the bottom, pick your poison. Awesome. Well, we'll make sure we have all that in the show notes and Charles, man, it's always awesome connecting with you. Keep up the, the great stuff and uh, we'll catch you soon. You Appreciate soon. you having me. Thanks guys. Mike, bye take bye. care, buddy.